Glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, we're starting a new book this morning, the book of Philippians. And so if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And Mike and Sue have Bibles in their hands. They'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first six verses today in the book of Philippians. God eats popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. <laughs> Maybe a little sacrilegious, I don't know, but it's the way you remember it. <laughs> All right, Philippians chapter 1. Let's read the first six verses together. The Apostle Paul Right, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The time I study this morning is got joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word, knowing, Lord God, it's your desire to speak to our hearts. And so we want to have open hearts to receive all that you have for us. Lord, we don't want to uh, have any walls up, Lord. We want the walls to come down that we might hear freely from your spirit what we need to hear. And Lord, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to make a commitment to you to have their sin forgiven, to be born again. We pray, Father, that they would make that decision today to follow you with their heart, soul, mind, strength, Lord, to to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. We thank you for the time that you've given us today. We pray your anointing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. What makes you happy? Well, according to the group, the Turtles, in 1967, they sang that a girl would make them happy. Imagine me and you, I do, think about you day and night, that's only right. Think about the girl you love and hold her tight, so happy together. How is the weather? You know that part. So according to the Turtles, all it takes is for one girl to say she belongs to him and he would be happy. That's it. Well, according to Jimmy Soul, from 1963... If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife. So from my personal point of view, get an ugly girl to marry you. So according to him, that's all it takes to be happy. Make an ugly woman your wife. I will never be happy then because it didn't happen. It was Bobby Farron, I think, who said it best. In every life we have some trouble. When you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Be happy. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry, be happy. The landlord says your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no cash. Ain't got no style. Ain't got no gal to make you smile. Don't worry, be happy. So even though your bed's been stolen, you haven't paid your rent, you now face eviction and possibly jail. On top of that, you have no money and no girlfriend. The best Bobby can say to us is, be happy. One more, Pharaoh Williams. 
doesn't even give us any reason for his happiness. He just sings, I'm happy, I'm happy, over and over and over again. With all these songs that tell us how easy it is to be happy, I would say we are not a happy people. So what's the problem? I believe it all comes down to this. We're seeking to be happy, but we're going about it all the wrong way. For most people, their happiness is entirely contingent on good things happening. I read a story about a man that walked by a table in a hotel and noticed that the uh, three men and a dog were playing cards. True story. And, and uh, no, it's not. <laughs> the dog appeared to be winning. That must be a very smart dog, the man commented. He ain't so smart, said one of the players. Every time he gets a good hand, he wags his tail. And that's the same way that it can be with us. If you get a new car, you're happy. If you get that ding in the door in your car, you're not happy. If you get a raise at work, you're happy. If you get laid off at work, you're not happy. Again, that's because your happiness is entirely contingent on good things happening. When things are going well, you're happy. When they're not going so well, you're not happy. And it's sort of a cycle that we put ourselves in, the cycle of life, because no matter how much you accumulate or how much you accomplish, you're always going to come up just a little bit short. So what's the answer? We find it in the book of Philippians. This is a book that offers something better than happiness, at least the world's version of, of happiness. It's something that can only be experienced by the child of God, and it's called joy. See, as we study this epistle to the Philippians, we're going to discover how we can live so that happiness is not dependent upon what happens to us, but instead it springs from this deep inner joy that we have. Sadly, today, so many Christians... They're living their life without any joy whatsoever. Yeah, brother, I'm fighting the fight. I'm walking the walk. I'm carrying my cross. No, what you are is depressing. Okay? Yeah, but you don't know what I've been through. You know, how hard my life has been and difficult has it been. I don't know. I can't have that joy. Really? It's amazing to me to think about this joy that the Apostle Paul keeps talking about when he wrote these words. Listen, he wasn't living in luxury. He was living in a place of extreme discomfort, to say the least. He'd been in prison, chained to a Roman guard 24-7 for his faithful sharing of the gospel. And for Paul, because just the type of person that he was, that wasn't a place he could get used to. Man, he was always on the go. He was a go-getter, always moving. And, and so to be in prison, chained to a guard, it had to be extremely frustrating for him. In fact, Paul describes some of his uh, situations that he had been through, had he experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 through 28, when he says there that from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've been in the deep, and journeys often in perils of water, perils of uh, all sorts of perils, countrymen and Gentiles and city and wilderness and sea and, and perils of false brethren and weariness and toil, sleeplessness often, hunger and thirst and fasting often and coldness and nakedness. Then he says, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Man, you think you have problems? Look what he's been through. I mean, consider what he just said. He wasn't saying that for sympathy. Although I think of all, all people, he deserved it. But it was a statement of fact. If anyone deserved to not have joy in his life, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And yet here in this book that he wrote, it's all about joy. 
19 times in the four chapters of Philippians, Paul mentions the word joy, rejoicing, or gladness. Let me touch quickly on a few of them. When he thought of the Philippian believers, it brought a smile to his face. In verses 3 and 4, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. When he thought of his own potential death, which could have taken place at any time being in that prison, he still had joy. Chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. But if I live on the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So thinking about the potential of his, of his death in the future, yet he says, I'm still rejoicing and I still will. Number three, when he, was encouraged, when he encouraged them to work together in unselfish harmony, his own joy intensified as he envisioned that happening. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort or love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Number four, when he mentioned sending a friend to them, he encouraged them to receive that person, how? Joyfully. Chapter 2, 28 and 29. Therefore I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with great joy and honor him like men. Finally, number five, he lays the bottom line out in Philippians 4, 4 when he basically says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. See, he mentioned that over and over again. And there are just a few of the times that he brings this theme home because he wants them to know, and the Lord wants us to know, that we can experience the same type of joy. The joy that Paul talks about is not something that was uniquely available just to the first century believers. It's available to us today. And there's also an important element that we find also running through this book of Philippians, and that tells in telling us how we can experience this joy And it's found in one word. It's the word mind. Paul uses the word mind ten times in Philippians and the word think five times. And then add that to the use of the word remember. And you have a total of 16 references to the mind. In other words, the secret of Christian joy is found in the way a believer thinks. It is mind, the way he thinks. Because no one's going to wave a magic wand over your life and make all your problems go away. You know, no more problems. See, you're going to have problems. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to have conflicts with people. You're going to have times where your health is going to give out. So what are you to do? What then? Well, we must learn to look at life differently if we want to have this joy. Now, this is in no way suggesting that Paul is advocating, you know, mind over matter, just positive thinking. If you just have a positive attitude, positive attitude. No, there's something more theologically sound than just that. It's something that is very realistic and applicable, and, and it's in the way that we look at things. Basically, what Paul is saying to us is that if you want to live happily and joyfully and in harmony with other people, you need to apply these principles that I'm writing in this letter. And he starts off by reminding us the fact that we must come to God according to God's terms. See, the first few few verses of Philippians are the door we must all walk through if you want this joy in your life. And that brings us to our three points this morning. If you're taking notes on how to have this real joy, it's taken from the acronym of joy, Jesus, others, and you. 
joy is Jesus, others, and you. One, two, and three. Now, I've said this before. If, if it's backwards, then all you have is yaj, and it doesn't make any sense at all. So we want to look at these three points in order. The first letter is J, and it stands for Jesus, and it's our first criteria in experiencing this joy, knowing Jesus, number one. Look at verses one and two. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the key to experiencing joy in our lives. It begins by being a bondservant. The word bondservant in the Greek is the word doulos, and it simply means you've submitted to the authority and control of Jesus Christ over your life. Now, if you haven't, then you're not going to have joy. See, Paul and his son in the faith, Timothy, fully, freely surrendered their lives to the Lord. And then we see Paul writing next to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Now, I think it'd be easy for us to kind of breeze over this little introduction here, but I think we'd miss a good foundational truth, not only in this book, but throughout the rest of the New Testament. Because in this opening statement about the life of joy, Paul is saying, if you want to be joyful and have joy, then you must be a bondservant, but you also must be a saint. A saint. Now, you may be going, well, that rules me on. I ain't no saint. Well, that's because we don't understand what the word saint means. In fact, in our modern usage of the word saint, it's something reserved only for the most holy people. We'll say, well, Mother Teresa, oh, she was a saint. I may have heard that the, in the Catholic Church, they, they recently canonized Pope John Paul II as a, a saint. And there are those who mistakenly say that you have to be dead to be a saint. And in your, in your lifetime, you've had to have ministered to so many people and, and done a certain amount of so many miracles. And then after you die... Then the church can vote on making you into a saint or not. Wrong. Eh, wrong answer. That's not the way it works. Why? Paul is writing to living people at that time. People that, whose lives have been touched by God. And he calls them saints. So we have to consider what that word actually means. It just simply speaks of a true believer. A literal definition of the word saint means one who is set apart and consecrated for the purpose of God's service. In other words, if you've dedicated your life to following Jesus Christ, then you're a saint. I'm a saint. Now, you don't have to call me St. Thomas, but I am one. So are you. In fact, you can be a saint and live in Springfield, in Ozark, in Nixa, even in Willard. You can be a, a, a saint. <laughs> the only criteria is that you're a born-again Christian. That's why I love what J. Vernon McGee has said. He said, you're either a saint or you ain't. So, so to have joy, you must be a servant. You must be a saint. They go together. If you're a saint, if you're a sent apart one, then you're going to want to serve the Lord. You know, fall under his authority, under his command. And in doing so, it's going to bring you joy. Uh, it, this is important because there's people today who want the blessings of the Christian life without doing anything on their part. You know, nothing to exchange for it. Well, we want to be happy and, if possible, joyful, but we want it in our own way. We say we're Christian, but we don't really put Christ first in our lives. We say we're, we're servants of the Lord, but we really just do our own thing and never seek the Lord in our lives. And then we wonder why we don't have this joy. Paul is saying you can't live that way. If you want to experience the promises of joy found in Philippians, you must first be a saint, a true believer. 
a servant, a bondservant. Then he adds a couple more things. He also mentions the bishops and the deacons in verse 1. The word bishop, bishop is the word episkopos, kind of like Eskimos, only not. Uh, it's, in the Greek, the word means to look over or upon an overseer. The word is synonymous with, with the word uh, elder or pastor or shepherd. Over in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul talks there, he says to the elders, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Now, pastors are elders, but not all elders are pastors or shepherds of flock. In fact, we know that Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 uh, when he uh, he called for the uh, when he was in Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church to meet together. See, elders deal with the spiritual matters of the church. They they assist the pastor because you know the pastor can't deal with everything that's going on to too many people, and so you have elders in the church to deal with the spiritual matters to pray for people. If, if, if there's any sick among you, let the elders of the church come together. We pray for them. You work together for the spiritual needs of the church. But then Paul also uses the word deacon. It's a Greek word, diakonos. It means servant, one who executes the commands of another. Deacons tend to deal more with the physical matters of the church. You can see this in Acts chapter 6 as men were raised up to wait on tables and, and minister to the widows in the church. Deacons in our church are those, I would say, they're, they're involved in the usher ministry. You know, they're taking care of the physical needs of the church, making sure you got a bulletin, making sure the temperature's okay in here, making sure you have a seat and it's clean and there's coffee in the back and, and all of those things. Why? Because God is a God of order. He does things decently and in order. So Paul is offering these principles of joyful living to bondservants, saints, pastors, elders, deacons, Basically, anyone who names the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior, he's promising you joy. And he goes on in verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said this before, I'll say it again. You'll never experience the peace of God until you first experience the grace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. You experience joy because, why, we're saved through God's grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works that anyone should boast. So we say because we've experienced the grace of God because of what Jesus Christ has done upon the cross. And I think that really, when you talk about happy songs, the best happy song that comes to my mind is the one Edward Hawkins wrote, who wrote the song, Oh, Happy Day. Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sin away. And he goes on for more than 24 times singing, Oh, happy day. I see the point. Because there's a reason to rejoice. We've been saved. All of our sins have been washed away through God's grace. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we can have joy. So that's number one, joy, knowing Jesus. Number two, that stands for others. If you want to have joy, you will be putting others first in your life. Look at verses 3 through 5. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from this first day until now. Notice Paul, he's in prison. He's chained to the Romans, Roman guard. And his focus is not on himself. It's on the others. And he, he thanks the Philippian Christians for their love and their, their generosity towards him. And as Paul prayed for these believers, it's just overfilled his heart with, with joy as they were working together to bring the gospel, a message to the lost. So who are these people 
that Paul loves so much. Well, to gain some insight on them, we need to go back to where all this began. Keep your place in Philippians chapter 1. Turn with me over to the book of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. This is where it all began, where it all came together. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 12. Paul arrives in Philippi, and it says there, Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and he says, as we, and, and, uh, and we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive it or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes, stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Listen, if you want to know how to start a church, we've just read it right there. Paul went in, one convert here, one there, and now we have the first church at Philippi. Okay, who is in the congregation? Well, we have a rich lady named Lydia. We have a a demon-possessed girl, and we've got a jailer. And what a great group to start with, huh? You know, a a great group for the next potluck. (laughs) But here's the amazing thing here. Now saved, picture Lydia bringing all of her rich friends over, and then we can see this ex-demon-possessed girl maybe bringing her friends over. Hopefully, maybe not, you know, if they're not demon-possessed. You know, and then the jailer shows up, 
all of his friends from the sheriff's department. And, and they all, they're going to fellowship together. You know what? Amazingly, isn't that the, the same thing we have on going here? I mean, we all come from different walks in life, different backgrounds, different social economic situations. But in spite of all that, in this house here, we call him Lord, we call him Master, we call him Savior, we call him God. You see, we, we, we come here, for lack of a better word, we, we strip ourselves of our status. And we're all one in Jesus Christ as believers. This is the church. This is who we're made up of, the, the saints, the called out ones, uh, the cause. Uh, this is who we are and why we are. And it's exciting to me to know that I can have fellowship with a brother apart from Christ I would have had nothing to do with. But now, as Paul says, every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy. It's the same thing with us. As we're putting others first, as we're thinking about other people's needs, we're praying for one another, interceding for one another. That's the key in bringing joy into our lives. Listen, let me encourage you this morning, before you leave here, you know, maybe having a time of fellowship, talking with some folks, not just heading out from the back door real fast. Take time to talk to people. Maybe get a prayer request from them. Man, how can I pray for you this coming week? What's going on in your life? You do that and, and see if that doesn't bring joy in doing so. I mean, let's put God's word to the test. It's a challenge. See if you want to experience joy as you look to the needs of others more than ourselves. Turn back with me now to, to Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Because we see Paul thanking God when he's remembering about them and he's praying for them and that's bringing him joy. Then he says, he's thankful in verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. See, once they became committed believers, all of a sudden all those differences didn't matter. The walls were broken down. They had fellowship from day one. From day one they had fellowship together and Paul is thinking about that. And we too, can have fellowship with those that we wouldn't, wouldn't normally associate with because of the gospel, because now we have the most important thing that matters in common now, and that's Jesus Christ. We can get along. So, if you want to experience true joy, it comes from putting Jesus first, number two, putting others first, and finally the focus is on you, it's on me. Again, Jesus, others, you, joy. True joy, joy comes from knowing that God has got a plan for you. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, God always finishes what he starts, what he begins. He never leaves something half done as, as men do. You know, with men we have unfinished books, unfinished songs, unfinished buildings. Why? Because a number of reasons, really a number of excuses could be cited. Sometimes it's a lack of resources. Sometimes it's a, a lack of time. Sometimes it's just a lack of desire. I don't know if, if any of you have been to my home. You know that there are a few places that you may have noticed that I've started projects that I've not finished. I have this great desire. Man, I want to do it. You know, I, I, I want to do something different. And I start and I lose interest, especially, you know, if it's harder than I thought it would be. You know, I have that desire to be, you know, Chip Gaines from Fixer Upper, you know. I end up being, you know, Tim the Tool Man and blowing everything up, messing things up. But, see, I knew this all along. I, I know I'm not a carpenter. I know that. I realized it very early on in my marriage after deciding to build a doghouse and it weighing about four to 500 pounds when I was done. But you watch that show, Fixer Upper, and Chip Gaines on TV, and no matter how many times, you know, you've blown it, 
You, know, you, you watch them building something and go, I think I can do this. I, I can do that. It looks easy. You know, when we first moved into our house, where now it's some 11 years ago, we decided to put on one of those storm doors, the ones with the nice brass door handles, you know. About two years, you know, of, of five kids going in and out of that, that door, you know, that handle was shot on it. Now, I didn't install the door or the handle, but I saw the guy that did it, and I thought, you know what, I could do it, so, so I could fix it. So I, I thought, right, let me take this door, and I, so I got the whole thing off. Now, if you come to my house today, nine years later, there's still no door handle on that storm door. Two years ago, we decided we were going to pull the garden brick up and put concrete down. There's a pile of garden bricks. There's still no concrete down. Isn't it good to know that God always finishes what he begins? I mean, could you imagine if God said, you know, I'm going to change Tom Humphrey. I mean, I'm going to mold him. I'm going to make him into what I want him to be. I mean, I'm going to do great things in his life. And Oh, never mind. I'm just bored with him. I'm going to move on to someone else. No, Lord, don't, don't leave me here. See, God's not like that. God is going to bring to completion that which he has begun in your life. Because Hebrews 12, 2 says he is the author and the finisher of our faith. But notice what this passage in Philippians does not say. It doesn't say you who have begun a good work will complete it. No, it says he who has begun the good work in you will complete it. See, God has started the work and God will indeed finish it. See, they, they represent the two bookends in life. The one who has started the work in your life is the one that's going to finish it. Man, that should bring great joy to your heart. Because no matter what's going on in your life, what struggle you face, hardship you're experiencing, God's Word says that you are going to make it. You're going to cross that finished line. In fact, Paul will later on tell us in chapter 2, verse 13, that you should work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that's a scary verse because people will quote that verse out of context. It's not scary if you take it in context. Okay, people say, well, well, you need to work out your own salvation. And if you don't, man, you need to be afraid, very afraid. You need to tremble. And they say it with that scary voice because it makes it sound worse. You know, tremble, you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what Paul is saying there. Because Paul will continue to say in the same verse, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So there's a balance going on here. God is the one who is working in you. And God is the one that's going to bring it to completion. So why does Paul say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Because there's my part and there's God's part. The phrase work out could be better translated, carry it to the goal and fully complete your own salvation with self-distrust. In other words, I recognize that I don't have the ability to do this on my own, but yet at the same time, I want to apply these principles in my life as I appropriate the power of God that He has made available to me. God wants to complete this work, but he's looking for my cooperation. He's looking for that faith coming from us that says, I trust that God is going to do that work in my life. He's got a plan for my life. And because I know he has a plan for my life, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep pressing forward. I'll keep reading my Bible. I'll keep praying. I'll keep going to church. I'll keep sharing my faith. I'll keep trusting in him. And as a result, you'll experience this joy that Paul talks about. But the problem is, we may cooperate for a while, and then we give up. And the reason is because you may not see change in you right away. You need to give it time. You need to give it time. It takes time to change. 
It takes time to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It takes time for your faith to grow. Listen, if you decide you're going to go get in shape and you go and start lifting weights, it takes time to bring those muscles back to shape. You know, you do, you know, 10 arm curls and then you stop and go look in the mirror and it's not going to be much difference there, you know. And that's what many Christians do. And because they don't see the change right away, they give up. They quit reading the Word. They quit coming to church. It takes time. It takes time to grow. And life can be tough, tough at times. But God gives us the promises that He's going to complete the work that He has started in you. Sure, there might be times that we stumble. There might be times that we fall. But if you're applying yourself, God will complete it. Now, if you're just hanging out at the gym and watching others lift weights as you're eating Dunkin' Donuts, then you're not going to accomplish much. You'll see a change, but it won't be in your muscles. It's going to be in your waistline. Notice I switched from Krispy Kremes to Dunkin' Donuts, just so you know that. Krispy Kreme, you know, they're good when they're hot, but Dunkin' Donuts, man, they're good. The cake ones, they're really good. Anyway, I got distracted for a moment there. The point is, I have to do my part, and God's going to do His part. I have to trust Him. I have to be in His Word. I have to have that faith that He will complete what He's begun. And He will do His part. He will. I think of Joseph. Man, he was only 17 years old when he had a vision of the sun and the moon and the stars bowing before him. And Joseph knew that it spoke of his brothers and that the authority that he would assume over his brothers. And sure enough, as, as prime minister of Egypt, his brothers did indeed bow before him, asking help from him. Joseph's dream came to pass, but not before he was thrown into a pit, falsely accused, and tossed into prison. And here's where we make the mistake. We say, well, I have this vision. I, I have this desire. I think the Lord has given me to do this or to do that. I, you know, I, I want to be a, a mother. Why am I not married? I, I want to be a missionary. So why isn't it happening? You know, it, it's in me to want to work with kids. So why aren't these doors opening? Understand this, folks. You might land in a pit or two. You might go through a prison or a trial every now and then. But notice, God will fulfill that which He has placed in your heart if you patiently endure, if you don't give up. Think of another man, Abraham. And he had to go through a whole bunch of stuff before his vision was fulfilled. Scripture tells us that that it was not until he patiently endured that Abraham obtained the promise. So again, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That word complete can be translated perfect or finish. So when is that going to happen? When will I reach this, this state of perfection? Not going to happen this side of heaven. Sorry, sorry to burst your bubble. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're either lying or they're misinformed or they're deceived. There are people who say, well, you know, I've reached sinless perfection. I've, I've attained the state of great spiritual maturity. I like the story that Charles Spurgeon tells of two guys who came to his office with the same claim. They said they reached the, the sinless perfection. They don't sin anymore. So Spurgeon picked up a pitcher of cold water and dumped it on the two guys. Needless to say, they found out they still had far to go. I mean, if anybody could have reached a place of spiritual perfection, the top, then it would have been the Apostle Paul. I mean, coming to know Jesus on that road to Damascus, this this vision, man, not only that, he wrote a good portion of our our, our Bible, the New Testament. He was caught up in the third heaven, saw things that that he couldn't even describe. Yet Paul, his very words we'll see in chapter 3 of this book, 
not, he says, not that I have attained already or already perfected, but I press on. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 14, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, we have to keep growing. We have to remain faithful. We have to keep learning. There's always so far for us to go. So when will we reach perfection? Only when we stand face to face with Jesus Christ. John tells us about it. 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Then he says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In other words, it will all come into focus on the final day when you stand before Jesus Christ, and then you'll be in that perfect state. No more sin, no more suffering, no more struggles. Man, that's something we can be aiming for, but not until that day. Listen, that should bring joy in each one of our hearts. Because that means you don't have to do it at all. You just do your best and commit the rest. Seek to apply yourself to, to, to godly living, living the Christian life, and God will bring the completion, the work He has begun in your life. That's the good news. News that you can find that joy today when you put, put Jesus first, others second, and you third. Now I want to close with this. Today is Palm Sunday. You know, we usually do a special study. I, I just thought, man, I want to deal with Philippians. But, but, but think about Palm Sunday, what it represents. It's, it, they call it triumphal entry Sunday. It's the day that we remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on, on, on the donkey and, and it's pretty prior to his crucifixion, prior to his death on the cross. And he allowed the people to recognize that he, he is the king. And Jesus would come forth publicly, not as a helpless victim, unaware of what lies ahead, but as a powerful victor, marching bravely in the battle, marching to the cross. And as he entered into the city, Matthew's Gospel records masses of people shouting in Matthew 21, 9, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So there's great joy on that day. So much so when the Pharisees said, make your disciples and the people stop, Jesus said, listen, if they stop, the stones themselves would rejoice. Yet we also know that there was great sadness that filled this day because those same cries of Hosanna came from ignorance of what Jesus came to do. Came from ignorance of God's word. See, the people wanted Jesus on their own terms. They wanted a deliverer. They wanted uh, one that would conform to their plans instead of, of, of his. They wanted Jesus to destroy Rome, but leave untouched their cherished sins and their superficial religion. Now, not a lot has changed in 2,000 years. There's many people who love Palm Sunday, you know, celebrate it, but they neglect Jesus the rest of the year. They celebrate His birth and arrival at Christmas, but they live as though He never came. They celebrate the resurrection and Easter, but live as though He were still dead. They sing praises to Jesus, uh, and many will sing praises because we think it will give us wealth and health and success and happiness, but our praises stop when obedience and commitment is required. We want the appearance of being religious as long as it doesn't require anything from me. So these folks on Palm Sunday thought that Jesus was coming to save now, but they failed to realize that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of our sins. Without the cross, there could be no salvation. The crowd would soon go from save now to crucify him. They would go from great joy to anger and misery. All because Jesus didn't do what the crowd wanted him to do, so they forsook him. 
And many people have done the same thing. They come to the Lord. They expect Jesus to be that type of good luck charm, expecting that I'm going to get help financially and physically, and, and they get disappointed when things don't go their way. Listen, we need to realize that Jesus came to die for our sin and to pay the price for our iniquity. If he never does anything else in our life presently, that's more than enough to be entitled to our loyalty and our affection and our devotion. If he never does anything for us, if he never gives us another blessing, we owe him our life because of what he did for us at Calvary. See, we started this study with joy, having joy, but the only true joy can come from Jesus Christ and knowing your sins are forgiven. And there may be some of you here this morning and you really aren't a happy person, certainly not a joyful person. Maybe you've come in with a sort of a crisis that you're facing right now. Maybe you have troubles at home. Maybe there's troubles with, with your kids, trouble with your husband and with your wife, with the in-laws, trouble at work, troubles, physical troubles, aches and pains, physical problems and the doctors can't cure. Maybe there's something you're facing right now that's difficult. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe things are going reasonably well. In fact, things are going so well that you can't figure out why you're miserable. Everything is going okay in your life, yet there's this sort of emptiness inside of you. You're not a happy person. Why? Because your happiness is depending upon good things happening for you. But God promises you a deep-seated joy that can be found no matter what you face, and that joy can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you know Him this morning, and you're not experiencing this joy in your life, then it's time to readjust your priorities. Time to to get back to Jesus, others, then you get back to putting Jesus first in your life. Seek to serve others, pray for others, and then know that God is working in you and for you, and He is faithful to complete what has begun in you. But it all starts with you being a saint, bondservant. How do you become a saint? As I said, you don't have to be dead for a few years. It's not that hard. All you do is, number one, you need to recognize that you're a sinner, that you're not right with God. That's the first step. Number two, you need to confess to God that you're a sinner. The Bible says if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Then number three, you need to be willing to repent of it. Not just confess it, but repent means stop the direction you're going and turn and go in the other direction. You put your complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And He will forgive you of every sin you've ever committed and He will make you a true believer. He will make you a saint. And then and only then will you begin to experience His promise of joy that we've been looking at. Have you done that yet? Have you asked Christ to come into your life? Do you know for certain this morning that your sin is forgiven? If not, would you like to? It could happen today. I want to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word because it tells us how we can have this joy in our life, Lord, as we uh, put you first in our lives and then others and then we see what you do for us. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you've given to us to go to the cross to die for my sins, for our sins, and that by believing in you, We can have our sin forgiven. We can be born again and have that joy of salvation. And Father, I pray right now, if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior, Lord, that they would not wait another moment, that they would see their need for you, the need to turn from their sin and turn towards you in faith, knowing, Lord, that you desire to forgive them and cleanse them. 
While the heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again? You want your sin forgiven? You want to have that joy that we've been talking about? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. Say, Lord, I, I, I want to give my life to you. I want my sin forgiven. I want to be born again. If that's your desire, just raise your hand. God loves you so much. doesn't want you to stay in that place of misery, and I know it's miserable. Just raise your hand in these last few moments. 